Recovery Elevator, episode 376. How can I have this much joy? It's taken me all this time. And I just, I, I hope I have 56 more years left on this earth to, to enjoy the joy I've found in sobriety. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On today's episode, we have Rhonda. She's 56 years old from New Orleans and took her last drink on, well, she doesn't know. She doesn't remember that date and that is okay. You don't have to remember the day of your last drink. And side note, I've met Rhonda. She is an embodiment of what life without alcohol can look like. She quit drinking, bought a sailboat, changed jobs, moved to Colorado, spends a significant amount of time each year in Costa Rica, and has an awesome dog named Jamal. You guys are going to love this interview. Rhonda is a rock star. Before we get any further, let's hear from Exact Nature. We are thrilled to partner with Exact Nature because we are committed to the same goal, to help you quit drinking. Exact Nature's safe, all-natural CBD-based products can aid your alcohol-free journey. If you struggle with sleep, cravings, mood swings, and high stress levels, learn more about how Exact Nature can help you at exactnature.com. Recovery Elevator listeners will receive 20% off their orders by using the code RE20. That's RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. With today's intro, I was probably 500 to 600 words in on a completely different topic. But after walking my dog Ben today at the dog park a couple hours ago, I realized there was something more pressing that I wanted to share. So here's what I did. I came back to my computer. I selected the 500 to 600 words I had already written. I then hit Command C. I'm on a Mac. This is copy. I then opened up a new note in my writing software, and then I hit Command V or paste so I can cover this topic in probably three weeks or in a future date. I then went back to this note, selected the five to 600 words, and then hit the delete key. Now, some of you millennials might be saying, yo, Paul, why not just use Command X or cut? Well, I don't know. I guess all I can say is I'm more of a copy and paste guy. I don't do Command X. Okay, none of us are getting those 30 seconds back, so let's move on. In episode 369, which came out on March 14th of this year, I talked about an experience I had while waiting in line at a pet store when somebody cut in front of me, if you can believe that. While waiting in line, I turned 45 degrees to my right to look at something for sale on the wall. My feet did pivot, I'll admit that, but I was still in the same place. It was more like a shuffle, and I don't even think my feet left the floor. And then, again, if you can believe this, when I pivoted back, there was a gal in front of me. My pivot 45 degrees to the right to look at the merchandise for sale on the wall and pivot 45 degrees back to the left probably took a total of 15 seconds. So when realizing there was someone in front of me in line or cut in front of me in line, that's what my mind was telling me, I immediately knew the teaching life was giving me. I said to myself, yeah, Paul, it's cool. She probably didn't see you. We aren't in a hurry. Just let this one go, buddy. And the person I was with even said the same thing to me. They said, Paul, 
don't do it. (laughs) And I even told myself, Paul, you can be right or you can have peace. 15 seconds later, I tapped this gal on the shoulder and let her know how she ruined my life. So listeners, I'm a work in progress. What's that AA saying? It's progress, not exactness or something like that. Nope. Or progress, not perfectness. I I think that's it. Okay, so this past March, I was walking my dog at the dog park and I saw a taller, older man approaching who from afar, I could see he was not enjoying his day. Perhaps it was his posture, his gait. I think I saw a limp. I don't know. I could just sense he was having a rough day. So I made it a point to smile and say hello to him. And his response was this, go back to California. It took me a second to register what the hell just happened. I said, what did he say? Are you serious? I'm not even from California. I went to college there, but I'm not from there. And what if I was? What a fucked up thing to say to somebody. Was it my trendy Kodopaxi vest that tipped him off? Again, in this moment, I recall telling myself, Paul, you can be right or you can have peace. We should just let this one go, buddy. But I couldn't. I didn't. I chose to be right. But luckily, I didn't see him again since it's a huge dog park. But I was pissed. I couldn't let it go. I just couldn't. And not so much for me, but for people who are moving from California. Imagine if you did relocate to Montana from California and that was the welcome you received. In fact, I saw in the evening Montana news a story about a neighborhood in Missoula, Montana, where people put signs up in their neighborhood saying, go back to California. And some of them even stood on the curbs while the moving vans with California license plates were unpacked, chanting the same thing. We don't want people from the southern border entering into America and then the western states entering into our states. When will this stop? You can see the ludicrousness of this. These people hate people from other places because they hate themselves. It's that simple. It's the universal mirror. And imagine if that was your welcome into your new neighborhood. It's embarrassing to be a human sometimes. And speaking of embarrassing to be a human sometimes, I was fully prepared to make the evening news myself and let this guy know that A, I wasn't from California, and B, what if I was, what the hell are you going to do about it? I can see the news story now. California transplant and his poodle get their asses kicked by a 65-year-old man at local dog park. And then I'd have to let the news station know that I wasn't from California. Thank goodness I didn't see that guy again. Until earlier today. I was at the dog park a couple hours ago. Normal spring day in Montana. You know, 28 degrees and windy. And I saw him approaching from about 30 feet out. I felt my shoulders, arms, and fists tighten. 20 feet out. 10 feet out. His eyes raised to meet mine. And I said, Yo, you remember me and my puffy vest? I'm kidding. I didn't say that. Here's what I said. I said, hello, sir. How are you? His response was, fine, thank you. It was friendly and it was kind. Now, after my first encounter with this gentleman, I was fully ready to be right. I haven't been in a fist fight sober and I hope that never changes, but I was so pissed that day. But here's the progress. I eventually got there. I let it go. And when I saw him again, I asked how he was doing. Again, it's progress, not perfectionism. We're all humans. I don't know what type of day that man was having. Sure, I was pissed after our encounter, but after a couple days had passed, 
I recall sending this gentleman love via the quantum airwaves, however that works. Again, we are all human with faulty machines in the dome. It's okay to be right or want to be right, especially in the moment. But sobriety teaches us we must choose peace. We don't have to choose peace immediately, but eventually we have to or else we develop resentments. And resentments for many of us can kill us. Why are these resentments so dangerous? Because resentments separate us. They create distance. They disconnect us. And what's the opposite of addiction? My first answer was Skittles, but it's not. It's connection. And if you couple Skittles with connection, it's even better. Now, before we hear from Odette and Rhonda, let's hear from a better way to get help. Let's hear from BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash elevator. Paul, thank you so much for another wonderful introduction and Recovery Elevator. Please help me welcome Rhonda to the podcast today. Hi, Rhonda. Hi, Odette. How are you, my friend? I'm great today. Thank you. I'm really happy that we're finally doing this because it's been <laughs> long overdue. So thank you. We're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> I hope so. Listeners, Rhonda is wearing the coolest pink <laughs> wig with a pink crown. I'm going to have to have her take a photo of herself and send it to me. And then I'll just share it on our Instagram the day that this episode airs. <laughs> we always wear wigs. Rhonda, when was the last time you had a drink? been uh, over two years, almost two and a half years. Do you have a birth date that you celebrate or do you just have like an estimated? Well, I time? actually sell I celebrate the day that I decided I needed to not never drink again, which was October the 22nd, 2018. So that's actually been uh, three and a half years, but it took me a year a little over a year to actually have that last drink. And I kept having to reset the timer, you know, and reset my last sober date. And that just became really defeating to me. And I built a lot of shame around it. So even my last date of the very last drink, I just don't even, I like to just block it out of my mind. The day that's really important to me is October 22nd. When I woke up that day and I knew my life had to change and I'll never forget that day. So that's the day I celebrate as a date. 
I love that. Um, because you know, sometimes being on this journey, just like you said, and thank you for sharing it, it, it's supposed to be about removing shame, but somehow if we feel like we're failing on this journey, we just add shame to an already existing pile of shame. And it's like, what? Like, it's totally counterproductive. I was listening to a podcast a few days ago. I can't even remember who it was, but the phrase that came up was anything that you do in recovery needs to be like an exfoliation of shame. And I just loved that like visual because I could, for me, I could just imagine myself like scrubbing down after like one of those like exfoliants on your body and just like letting the layers of that <laughs> gunk like disappear. And I'm like you, you know, I've had a lot of day ones. I've had some relapses. I've had some periods where I went back out, all of that stuff. And shame has always accompanied those times. So I really appreciate, I don't know, the, the, the way that you made it work for you. Yeah, it just, it really, really works for me. I, I, you know, when people would ask after I was in a, a year into the journey and maybe I'd slipped 30 days before and people will say, when, when what is your sober, sober date? If I just met them. And if you say, well, it was 30 days ago, they don't get the whole picture of what you've been through. And I, and I'm, I feel the same way about when other people share their sober dates with me. I, I kind of like to know if they're new in the journey that I need because I want to be able to help them and reach out more. However, it's somebody who's been on the journey for 10 years. I know that's someone that I can reach out to for help. You know, like they've, they've been through lots more than I've been through. So to me, it's really more about that journey when you've really decided that you needed to stop drinking because that first year and a half, even though my last drink was, you know, a year and a half into it, I learned a lot during that time. Mm -hmm. Cause there were times when I went three and four weeks without drinking. And I still learned a whole lot in that first year and a half, even though that. So if I, if I counted my sober date as the real last date, it doesn't really explain what I've been through to me, to me too. It wasn't just the shame, but it was also the, the way to communicate with other people. Yeah. But a lot of it was about the shame. Yeah. And like you said, knowing that the added value of being on the journey, it, you don't start from scratch. That doesn't like disappear. Those experiences, all those attempts, all those days, it doesn't go away. It, it is added value to the journey the way it could be to somebody else, like you said. So I, I, I just really like that we're, we're talking yeah. about this and thank you. And, and I really don't want to remember my last drink. <laughs> I just <laughs> want to remember the day that was, that was important. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, Rhonda. And before we get to kind of your relationship with alcohol and all of that, good stuff. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. And listeners, I'm a good friend of Rhonda. I'm really grateful that I get to have her in my life. But um, for all of you that don't know her, Rhonda, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am 50, I just turned 56. I'm uh, originally from New Orleans. I lived my entire life in New Orleans until about a month ago. Um, I was born and raised there and raised my kids there. I have three, I'm divorced. I'm single now. I've been single for 17 years. I now live in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I have three grown kids. They're in their early twenties and I'm a physician. I'm an anesthesiologist and a mom and a recovering addict. What do you do for fun, Rhonda? Uh, anything outdoors, mainly sailing. I love to sail and anything on the water and hiking and uh, being with my recovery friends. 
and traveling. Traveling is number one. Traveling and also hanging out with your cute puppy, Jamal. Well, he's not a puppy, but I just <laughs> adorable. Jamal gets to do everything I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Friend. He's got a well, great life. <laughs> he does have a great life. He totally does. Um, and let's get, you know, to to your story. Let's get to what got you here with us. When did you start drinking? How did that develop in your life? When did you realize that alcohol was becoming problematic? And, you know, how did that progress in your life? And what got you to start quitting? Well, um, I, I say my first drink was uh, actually in Colorado on a, on a trip with my family when I was probably 12 years old. It was New Year's Eve. And I had champagne and then I drank everybody's leftover champagne and had a horrible headache. I'll never forget that. But I really, um, and then I, you know, growing up in New Orleans, drinking was always a thing, even in, as a teenager, but I didn't really, pro- I wasn't a problem drinker until I was older. My first addiction was, um, an eating disorder. When I was 18, I developed an eating disorder and I, and I used that as my outlet and dealt with my stress and shame that way until I was 30 and I recovered from my eating disorder, recovered from that and was kind of in a really healthy space for a few years. And then I, I can look back and say, I started using alcohol to numb the pain when I was in my late thirties or 40, went through it as I was going through a divorce. And then all through my forties, it got worse and worse. I got a DWI early in my forties or like mid forties. I'm like I said, I'm 56 now. And then um, it just got worse and worse and worse until a few years ago when, you know, I was going to lose my kids. So I knew that I was, I, I had a problem and I needed to stop. Thank you for sharing, especially about the eating disorder stuff. I know that, you know, we've talked about it, but when you made that shift leap, or I don't know what a better word for it is from being healed with your eating disorder to drinking a lot, were you able to connect the dots? Like, oh, I used to do this to deal with hard moments of life. And now I kind of swapped over to this. Were you able to recognize that or was it in hindsight? It took a while. It definitely took years. Uh, I ignored all the signs, you know, even, you know, a a friend or two saying something kind of, you know, like I would just ignore it. I didn't want it to be that way. My mom had a drinking problem. I swore I'd never had a drinking problem. It definitely was very slow. And, you know, I don't want to blame it on the culture at all, but, you know, the culture in New Orleans, um, makes it really hard to realize you have a problem when it's so drinking there, day drinking, drinking excessively is such the norm. It did take me a long time to realize it. And then I did, you know, there was a conscious part of me that, you know, saw little signs, but I just didn't want to, I didn't want to see it. Looking back, definitely I see it. And what type of drinker were you, Rhonda? Like, did you socially drink a lot? Like you said, you lived in New Orleans. I also know you had you know, young kids at the time. So were you just out with them and out just being social or were you drinking alone at home? When it first started, I was never drinking home alone. And that was, you know, the thing like, well, I don't drink home at home alone, so I'm good. But just socially, I mean, in New Orleans, like little league games sell beer and wine at your kids' little league games. And I'm like I said, I'm not blaming it on external, but it allowed me to just kind of coast under the radar for a long time. Like all of the social, like, you know, 
I mean, what happens nowadays, you know, like the mommy wine clubs and the, you know, drinking at birthday, little kids birthday parties is normal. You know, that was, that's been normal in New Orleans for, you know, centuries and it made it really easy. So at first it was, you know, that kind of social drinking and then, you know, eight, nine years into it, I'd say, I'm just kind of ballparking. Then it became the at home drinking wine alone after the kids went to sleep. And then after the kids got older, it was like more drinking at home alone. And, you know, they noticed it. And then there was still drinking, you know, at social activities that was always there. I was never a daily drinker um, because I would get hungover so badly, especially towards the end. I would drink maybe, I was more like a binge drinker every three or four days. Not that there was never days, you know, nightly drinking for a couple of days at a time, but if I was hard drinking, it would be every few days. Yes, yes, I hear you. And then you did mention, you know, that your kids were growing up and and started noticing what, if you don't mind expanding on this, like, did they ever talk to you about it or ask like, mom, you're drinking again? Or how did you notice that they were noticing? Yeah, so I have three kids. My my oldest is a boy. My, um, and then, and they're real close together. Boom, boom, boom. I had them a year apart. And um, I'd say that right after my baby was born is, you know, maybe like a year later is when I started turn- looking back, I started turning to alcohol then because of the stress, you know, <laughs> the stress I brought on myself by having three kids, boom, boom, boom. It was really stressful. And I was working and um, I was married to someone who was very, very busy. He, he worked a lot and had a a big social network. And so it was, I, I put a lot on my plate and I wasn't good at asking for help. So anyway, that's a little tangent, but my kids started noticing when they were, you know, my, my middle child was the one that noticed the most. My son and my youngest daughter kind of always either looked the other way or made excuses. And my middle daughter was the one that really had the binoculars out. And uh, she was tough on me and started pointing it out probably when, before she was even 10 years old. And I would, you know, react by, I'm not an, you know, she would say, I think you're an alcoholic. You need to go to AA. And I'd say, no, I'm not. I can go three or four days without drinking. I am not an alcoholic. I don't get the shakes in the morning. You know, I could go a week, I could go two weeks without drinking and I, which I could have, but it, it would have been hard, but you know, I used all those excuses. Like I wasn't the picture of an alcoholic that we think of. And so I would just ignore or make excuses and then hide. Then that just, just caused me to hide it. You know, I would put my wine or beer into a diet Coke can, or, you know, I would hide, hide, you know, drink out of a coffee cup in the kitchen at night instead of a wine glass. And just, it caused me to hide it, you know, and then then I started thinking, oh, maybe there is a little problem, but no, it's just because my daughter's, you know, oversensitive. Yes. That's what I was going to say. You know, when did that, when did you cross that bridge from, you know, just being someone who was drinking in New Orleans and, and just someone who was doing whatever you, everyone was doing to, oh, shoot. But you seem to have answered my question kind of when you started getting yeah. into different behaviors around the substance. Yeah. Oh, and then you know what we should talk about is Katrina. That was a, that was the time when Mm. I started drinking. So that was 2005. Um, My kids were uh, five and six, four, five, six, seven-ish year olds. And we evacuated to Phoenix 
um, for the hurricane. And so we were just kind of displaced with just the backpacks we had. We, you know, we, we left home with a two days worth of clothes and backpacks. And then, you know, the home was, our city was gone. So we had to fly to Phoenix where I had some college friends. And that's when the drinking really, that's when it started. And then my kids started noticing a few years, you know, three or four years later than that. And then I didn't get help for 10 years. You know, that had to be such a rough experience. Um, Just the amount of uncertainty, not to mention being a mom and having three kids with you and having to deal with what happened with Katrina. I mean, that had to be so, so scary. Really, really traumatic. Like just talking about it right now makes my stomach churn. Like it's still very painful. I had to do a lot of therapy over that. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. And, you know, you did say that over time it started progressing. You were starting to noticing you started noticing like, oh, maybe there, there is a problem. You know, I'm drinking out of a Coca-Cola can, but you also said at some point you, you got a DUI. So how did, how did that happen? If you don't mind sharing. So that was in like 2007. So two years, right, right after we had come back from Katrina. And then I had um, my best friend from grade school and high school and all had uh, breast cancer and she had just died. And my sister, my sister-in-law had just killed herself. I was just going through a lot, a lot of problems and was drinking over it. You know, I just covered everything up with drinking. And it was the night before Thanksgiving. I was at a boyfriend's house and didn't realize how much I'd had to drink. And anyway, had to drive home because his kids were there and got a DWI and had to report it to the medical board and went through a whole program, did everything that the medical board wanted me to do, you know, to go through that. But it, I just used, you know, I, all of my friends, colleagues, everyone just said, oh, it could have been me. I drink and drive all the time. You know, don't worry about it. It could have been me. It happens all the time in New Orleans. That's what we do. We drink and drive. And, you know, it was like kind of normalized and that, you know, we use our defense mechanisms to normalize it for ourselves. So that was 10 years before I really realized I had a problem. I just kind of brushed it under the rug. Well, not only you, but like you said, the people around you were giving you feedback to where the justification was basically being solidified. And and I feel like that happens too with people that we've interviewed where they got their first DUI when they were younger and same. I feel like, I don't know, I'm from Mexico as you all know, but it almost seems like rite of passage e to get pulled over, get a DUI. Like it happens to all of us. You know, we all club, go to clubs, we all party and like, don't worry about it. Like I know more than a handful of people that it's happened to them. Right. Right. So we just, you know, and we don't want it to be a problem. I mean, who wants to tackle that problem? You know? I know. <laughs> when did you start noticing that you were, you know, that you, even though you could go three or four days to kind of like bust one of the myths about, you know, binge drinking and whether or not you have a drinking problem, you did have your gap days. But when did you notice that, you know, the obsession was definitely there? You know, even though you may, you may have not been drinking, yeah. you were like already mentally there. This is easy. So four years ago, my daughter, my youngest one, who was seven, when she just turned 17, she went to rehab for alcohol and marijuana. And 
And then she was, she went to rehab for a few months, then went to sober living in Dallas. And I was living in New Orleans. And so two things happened. I, at the time was kind of starting to moderate a little bit because I, you know, she had kind of pointed out, my other daughter had pointed out the problems and, you know, they both had said, we don't want you drinking when we're around you. So, you know, I started moderating, not drinking. And I had my kids half the time, a week on and a week off. So I started trying to moderate when they were with me, I wouldn't drink. And with they, they were with dad, their dad, I would drink. Well, then my youngest went, went to rehab and, you know, the rule was I cannot drink when I should go, go to visit her. And I would go visit her every two or three weekends because she was a baby, you know, she was my baby. She was 17 and, um, and living in Dallas. We found her a great sober living place. And <clears throat> she had been there a few months and I'm on my way to the airport in New Orleans to go visit her for the weekend. And I get sloshed. Airports were like a huge trigger for me. And I get drunk on my way to go visit my daughter who's in sober living. She picks me up from the airport. She got a pass to pick me up from the airport and she picks me up and I'm loaded. And I tried to, you know, I wasn't drinking. I'm not drinking, blah, blah, blah. My kids would notice if I had like a half a glass of wine, they would notice. I would start slurring already. I was real obvious. And um, so she's like, she stopped at a Walgreens and bought a breathalyzer and I, you know, I even thought I could pass it, you know, I, and I, I, that was, you know, that's a sign like that. You can't get a bigger Mack truck hit you from the side. Like I showed up drunk to visit my sober daughter who I didn't want anything more than just to support her and have her, I put her and, you know, I put myself in front of her. It was awful. So that, that was a big sign. And then um, now I'm forgetting the second sign. No, oh, it's okay. and she said, yeah, yeah go she ahead. said she didn't want to spend things. She also said, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm not going to spend Thanksgiving with you. I'm going to spend Thanksgiving with dad. And I said, I won't, I promise I won't drink for Thanksgiving. And she said, I, I know. And I love you. I just can't trust it. And my youngest and I, I mean, I'm close with all of my kids, but I was especially, well, I mean, kind of codependent to her. <laughs> so that really, that when, when we were always codependent, you know, her whole life. So when she turned 17 and started like getting better and she built that boundary and then I had to realize, wow, if, if she's not protecting me, then I really have a problem. If she points out that I have a problem, I have a problem. And that's when it happened. Well, yeah. And also it sounds like obviously, and she was at sober living and had gone to treatment, you know, she was learning to protect herself. And I totally. just give her all the credit because I, I know totally. her as well. And that I, had to be so uncomfortable for her to ha- even have that conversation. And I know because I've been there to say, no, I don't. And you said, I trust it instead of I, I don't trust you, which I think was brilliant. If she did say it that way was, you know, it, it wasn't you, it was your relationship to the alcohol. I feel like a big part of the shame mm-hmm. is enmeshing ourselves to this thing and and we are something without it too but she just wasn't ready and that had to be hard i i can't even believe it i i'm like she was a baby i mean you know 17 she was just growing up and for her to for her to do that i knew like yeah this is a problem i'm so proud of her yeah uh what happened afterwards rhonda like i'm, I'm sure that felt heartbreaking to you how far out was this from your october aha moment. Okay. So that, that was June. That was June. And, um, I was already, so I was already, huh. I was already, wait, let me see something. 
how did that work? Oh, that was June after my trying to think, was that after my, my October? Yeah. Okay. So that was June after I decided to get sober. The real, the real morning, like October 22nd, what I've answered your question wrong. October 22nd, I woke up because I was out with friends the night before and I swore I'd only have one drink. We were at this bar in Florida, Florabama and the they have these bushwhacker. I was, I'm a sucker for frozen sweet drinks. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have one drink, just one bushwhacker. And uh, I woke up the next morning with no purse and no phone and <laughs> barely remembered my friends walking me down the beach to get home. So that was an eye opener. But, and so that's when I started going to AA, but then the, I never was really, really, really like able to really stop until that de- the deal with Sydney. Yeah. Yes. And so you, you did mention, you know, and I know this, that AA was a part of your journey. So how, once you had finally reconciled, you know, this is a problem. I don't want to drink anymore. AA was part of your journey and what else, you know, how was that beginning stage for you? So the first thing is AA, that's all I knew. And then I did AA for, well, so that morning when I woke up after the incident with Sydney in Dallas, when I drank, I immediately called my sponsor and said, Oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. I've been going, I've been doing all the work. I'd done my fourth step. And she said, well, I really don't know what to do. I've never had someone this bad. <laughs> I've never had a, I know, right. I've never had a sponsee that's, you know, couldn't stop drinking. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my God, what's wrong with me? You're like, you know, is that it supposed just... to make me feel better? <laughs> I know. I was like, well, there you go. And that shame again, like she was like, you have a really, really, really bad problem. You, you know, you, you risked your daughter, you risked your relationship with your daughter. Like you have, a. it just shamed me more. Like the whole thing was shaming for me personally. I know AA does wonderful things for people and it, you know, it got me, uh, you know, quote unquote off the street. But um, after that, I reached out to my recovery elevator community at already met, you know, been listening to recovery elevator podcast and I'd already joined cafe RE. And so through cafe RE, I found, um, the Tempest sobriety school, which is run by Holly Whitaker, who wrote the book, um, quit like a woman. So I'm gonna put my plugs in there for her because she's, she is one of the people who saved my life. I love her. Um, I know. So I, I, I got that information. I learned about that through Cafe RE, which also saved my life because there's so many people there that have so many different ideas. There's not one way to get sober. There's so many different ways, which can get confusing and overwhelming. But I just knew like, I'm go- I have to try everything. I know I can do this. I'm a, you know, triple A personality. I know I can do anything I set my mind to. And I was like, there's gotta be an answer to this. I've gotta figure it out. And so I did the Tempest Sobriety School, which is like the opposite of AA for me. And, you know, in my opinion, it was like self-care, take baths, do yoga, meditate, breath work. Mainly what what worked for me was Mm self-care, like to take care of my inner child, which was the same exact, ironically, the same exact work that I did to get over my eating disorder. I tried for 10 for 10 years, I went to a million different therapists. I had, you know, I was blessed with my father who supported me and would, you know, would pay for my therapy to try to get my eating disorder 
um, cure treated. And I couldn't, I, I, I was at a loss and I finally found someone who, tr- who, who had the uh, program that treated your inner child and your ego that broke down yourself into three different parts. Your, your true soul, which is the heart of you. It's who you were born with. And that perfect inner child soul that has no shame and no guilt and no traumas. And then we, are, we, we experience life and we develop a wounded inner child and then the ego that has to take care of the wounded child. And Holly kind of, Holly Whitaker and the Tempest Sobriety School also works with that. And it's all about, you know, taking care of your wounded child so that your, your ego, your protector doesn't need to drink and eat and have, you know, all these behavioral things that we do to numb our pain. So Holly Whitaker and Simpson Sobriety School, really, that was what clicked and got me some, what we call, you know, we talk about it, friction underneath our feet to like get, really get some time and get more than 30 days of being sober. And then um, I really had to deal with shame. I, I learned that I drink, I eat, I starve myself. I do all of that because of shame. I have a huge shame baby inside of me and I have to take care of and get rid of that shame. And I did plant medicine, which was the huge factor in really changing my life, which took away all of my triggers to drink. Once I did plant medicine, it, it purged all of that shame away, most of it away, away from me. That was a true exfoliation of shame. <laughs> totally. It, it worked. It wasn't pretty, but it worked. Uh, you know, Rhonda, I know you. Uh, but just hearing you speak, I, I, I get emotional because you've been through so much. And that's the same case for a lot of the listeners, especially when there's cross addiction, addiction involved. And it's like, man, I thought I already had dealt with this, you know, it for me, at least, sometimes it gets so defeating. And you and I also, if you don't mind me sharing, we talk also about depression, which is another slice of the mm-hmm. cake. And like, it tends to be so much, especially for me, when I am doing the work and when I am, you know, quote unquote, doing it right, or, you know, they said that this would help. And then I find myself in a place where I feel like that wounded child that hasn't done anything. It's like, oh, like, how am I still here? And obviously that's not the, the permanent reality. Like that's not, we think that's how we're going to feel all the time, but it tends to be so intense, you know? So I just, I really appreciate you sharing because I know, it hasn't been easy. And I know you've exhausted yourself trying anything and everything. And that takes so much strength. Thank you. Thank you. And I also, because we're kind of on that subject, want to talk to you and share something that might help listeners, which is, we hadn't talked about it, but molesting. I, and a lot of people who have eating disorders and alcohol addiction or any addictions, you know, I have childhood traumas like um, molesting. And I was molested when I was young, like nine or 10 years old. And I think that was a really big part of my traumas that led to, I mean, among other things like my alcoholic mother and, you know, a lot of stuff, but that was a big part. I didn't know it until finally I confronted that person who is a family member and I confronted that person and Odette, that was when I had my last that was not long after my last drink. And that I totally feel, I felt it when he walked away and I walked away from the conversation. 
and I finally confronted him. I felt the world lift off my shoulder that I'd been carrying around for 40 something years. It, it was gone. It was like, I'm okay now. And I don't have to keep numbing about it. It's out. I'm not hiding. I'm not ashamed and hiding it anymore. And, you know, I just want to share that, like that you're not alone if you've been in that situation and it's hard to get over that stuff, but like, I am so joyful now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm teary right now, but the reason I wanted to do this interview and I, I, I finally did it. <laughs> I've known you for three years and I've been so scared to do this interview, but recently the last you know year of my life, I have so much joy. I have, it's like incredible. I have to pinch myself and go, how can I have this much joy? It's taken me all this time. And I just, I, I hope I have 56 more years left on this earth to, to enjoy the joy I've found in sobriety and, you know, like what it's taught me and how I've dealt with and confronted these things that I carry shame about. And it, it's just, it's remarkable. And I want people out there to know that you can do it. And it's, it, you know, you might have to do hard things like plant medicine <laughs> or, or confront someone who did something terrible to you and you might not want to do it. And it might ruff, ruffle the feathers of your entire, you know, support group or family or whatever it is, but and you might have to meditate a lot and talk about hard things, but God, it's so worth it. You know, it is so worth it. Rhonda, you're making me cry. I know. I know. <laughs> you're making me cry because I know you've been through it and you're sharing so much. And I'm just so grateful because I know it's a lot of big T trauma. So thank you. And and listeners, you are not alone. Also, if you've experienced abuse like Rhonda shared. But um, you know, when I met you through Recovery Elevator, I, I still wasn't the host of the show. And we met at a retreat. And I just feel like there's like two layers of strength for people in recovery. One is like having the courage and finding that strength in you to do, like Chris always says, the next right thing and to do the mm -hmm. thing, to get through the craving, to do the hard thing, which we all can, but that requires a lot of energy. But then I feel like the other layer of strength is the strength that I always see you find, which is the strength to then find the joy, you know, because you could do the work and do the hard thing and then just be defeated at the end. And like, I did it. Okay. You know, like I ran a marathon. Now I just want to go to bed for five days. But there's something about you, Rhonda, that just is like, okay, I did something really hard. Now I'm going to bring out my hula hoop and dance at midnight, <laughs> you know, and I think that is not everyone can do that. And it's been such a pleasure to be around you whenever I see you, whenever you're at retreats, you just, you have it in you. Uh, it's in your inner child, right? So I just, I do want to take this moment because listeners who don't know you to talk about joy and how you find and have found sobriety <laughs> to be fun. How has this been fun for you? What makes this yeah. fun? Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say as I'm telling you and everyone how joyful I am, I mean, you also hit on the depression. I mean, there are times when it's not so joyful, but for the most part, there's way more joy in my life. I mean, every, every life has got, you know, hurdles and sadness and I, I have my ups and downs, but in, I've never had joy like this, you know, how do I find joy dancing around the house? Who taught me that called Churchill? Um, I still have my little, from 
from one of Paul's little, uh, one of his courses, he asked us to, you know, make a, a playlist of our favorite feel good songs. And, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't know my favorite feel good songs. This is so, you know, oh my gosh, homework. I don't want homework. I still have it. And I dance around the house with earphones on and who cares? Nobody's looking. And even if it's, I, I would never have done that, you know, five years ago. That's where, that's where that true joy comes from, you know, like really being with yourself and taking walks and seeing, you know, the beautiful spring flowers. I don't know. That's joy comes from my friends too. You know, my longtime friends and being with people I love and my sober friends. Yeah. You know, I was stuck in traffic. Well, not traffic, a, a car wreck. Uh, I think it was a car wreck. You'll have to correct me, Rhonda. In the car with Rhonda once with some of our sober family. And we were stuck there for a few hours, but it just, it flew by because we were in good company and it's just easy to be around you, Rhonda. So I'm just grateful to know you. Ah, thank you. And I didn't even have a bananagrams. <laughs> That's true. I still That's don't know how joy. to play. Next time I'm with you, you'll learn because I'm obsessed. So I love playing board games too with, and I, I mean, I never did before when you're drinking, you don't want to play board games because you got to get up so much to fill your glass or everybody, you know, like, but board games are fun. Yes. <laughs> with your friends. We, we have a lot of board game fun. Bananagrams are a hit in, in our community, but, uh, and you know, Rhonda, I want to know too, how, you, you know, now your kids are grown up and you do have a lot of friends, but you also have a lot of work to do. You know, you're a working woman and you spend a lot of time just you, you know, in between the travels, in between the trips, in between the fun times. What are some tools that you just use in your daily routine that have helped you keep the friction, like you said, underneath your feet? What keeps you going on a day to day? Okay. Like I said, taking care of my inner child. Oh my gosh. I bath, a bubble bath is like, it's grounding and it really, you know, just slows the world down. I tend to make the world way too fast <laughs> or I tend to be too fast for the world <laughs> and get too much stuff done. So it's a morning routine is really important. And I think you you kind of feel the same way. Holly Whitaker taught me that in the Tempest sobriety school, wake up and I, I, have a little morning routine, hot lemon water. And I read my melody beady and, um, and re read a couple of like daily meditations. And, and then throughout the day, like just stop. I have to stop myself to just breathe. I, I did a lot of breathing courses, not a lot, but I mean, I did a couple of breathing courses through Holly Whitaker and um, Kundalini yoga breathing. And that's, that just like slowing myself down is really important and connecting with my recovery community. You know, whether I go on our Facebook page to Cafe RE or listen to a podcast or reach out to friends in the group, you know, um, I got, for me, I have to slow down. No, I hear you. And a lot of this journey is about getting to know yourself. And I think it's very smart. You just basically hit a nail on the head because we talk a lot about in our community and in some of the courses that we teach about you know, everybody must do this. You must have a morning routine. You must stay busy. And for some of us, I, I feel like I'm a little bit similar to you and a few other friends that I've discussed. The challenge is not to do more. The challenge is to do less. So you really have to get to know yourself and and work from there, because I do think that although at the beginning you need guidance from people that are doing the thing that you aren't able to do, 
it, it's important to, to just have someone that you're following because you've never done it. But also later in time, you start realizing how you really need to cater towards yourself. You know, you know that it's hard for you to slow down. You know that these are your specific needs and really kind of turning back to yourself once you have that trust to yourself. Um, that for me, I, it wasn't there at the beginning. I had to trust other people to tell me what to do. So it does kind of mm -hmm. go from looking outwards for the support to obviously maintaining that net and all of those tools that you've built, but then turning around and going back within. And we never had permission to do that. You know, I mean, at least I didn't. I was always told it's selfish to take care of yourself. Yes. You know, like you have to take care of everyone else. And and that's a problem. You know, we're, we're ne never given permission that it's okay to slow down and take, a, take care of yourself first. I mean, like we say, you can't fill anybody else's cup until your cup's full, you know? And it's a, it's a shame that society doesn't, that teaches us that we're not allowed to take care of ourselves. You know, another thing, when I mentioned getting on Facebook to Cafe RE, that's another thing I had to like change in my life for sobriety was getting off of social, like normal social media. I just do sobriety social, like just my, my groups, like it brought me so much anxiety to compare myself to the rest of the world. That seems to be so perfect and more perfect than me. Yeah, that's. That's really helpful because we are co constantly comparing our insides to someone else's outsides. This is, this mm -hmm. is not my words. This is someone else's. It was yeah. a quote that I really like. And, and, and it's true. You know, I, we, social media is built that way in itself. I, I think there's some great things about it, but also we just have to be very mindful to set those boundaries. Rhonda, mm -hmm. I know that recently you moved. I want to shift gears a little bit. I know you moved and you are, starting to meet new people and just having some new surroundings and new places that you now will become your part of your new community. So tell me what would happen today if you, I don't know, go to an event or a housewarming party or your neighbor invites you over. What happens when someone offers you a drink? Oh, I just say, no, thanks. I don't drink. Like not a big deal. I like that. Yeah. No, thanks. I don't drink. And it, you know, where I am now in Colorado is a lot different because a lot of people don't drink or that's not big drinker drinking community. But in New Orleans, it was really hard in the beginning. So I usually will try to have a drink in my hand, you know, an alcohol-free drink in my hand first so that no one asks me that. But um, now I just say, no, thanks, I don't drink. And if they go, oh, why? Um, I just say, it just, I just, it started, it made me feel terrible. I got to the point where I just had terrible terrible debilitating hangovers which is true towards the end I would have even just two or three glasses I mean which wasn't a lot for me <laughs> um I would really I would feel awful for a day or two and so I just say the truth no I can't if I even have one glass of wine I have a terrible hangover and nobody really argues with you on that yeah, I like that. You know, sometimes I know New Orleans is hard and you basically got sober there, but sometimes also starting from scratch for some can be daunting. And for some, it's almost refreshing because this is who you are now. You know, you're you're just a non-drinker now. And that's how you're coming into this new chapter of your life, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it's amazing. So I never thought I could get sober in New Orleans and it was really hard. Because it, 
it's part of my identity. New Orleans is. I was born, you know, like I said, I was, I've been there my whole life. It's such an amazing city. It's a small community. And I just, I knew, I knew like if I quit drinking, I don't know if I could have a life here. And, but I, but when I realized I had to quit, I quit and I made a life there. And, but after a few years of trying to make a sober life there, I just realized, you know, I can't, I just, don't like, I, I just can't make a sober life here. There's not enough of a sober community. And so that's why I kind of made the leap. And my parents had passed away and I have a daughter that's one of my middle daughters graduating from college here and staying in Colorado. So I was like, I'm ready to move to a place that's healthier and has more outdoor things for me to do. And it was just right. Like four years ago, I'd say I'm never leaving. I'm so getting sober and leaving New Orleans. That would be awful. And it's, just, you never know. You never know what the future has. It's been awesome. It's a never, beautiful move. I, I, <laughs> I'm so excited for you because I know that I know how you've changed and how now this is an opportunity that isn't daunting and you've been very excited about it. So I can't wait to come visit. <laughs> and nothing's permanent. You can always go back. Yeah. I always, I always take leaps of faith because I always know, you know, nothing is permanent. You can, you know, other than death and taxes, we can all, I always feel like you should try everything once because you can always not do it again if you don't want to. Yeah. And you never know, you know, I I've been in many situations where I thought that I, I had said never, or I had judged and then there I was. So it's just, yeah. it, it's, it's totally humbling. So I, I hear you and my friend, we have reached the rapid fire round. So if we can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Yeah, I totally forgot there was more than one question. <laughs> there are multiple questions. The first one is, what are you excited about right now? Oh my gosh. Right now I am so excited about, well, I mean, obviously moving to Boulder, my new, my new home in Boulder. And there's so many sober friends here and so many sober things to do. I'm ecstatic. And to be closer to California so I can come visit you. Yes. What is an <laughs> unexpected perk of being sober? Oh my gosh, there's a hundred. Are you kidding? Just feeling fabulous all of the time and mm -hmm. being able to drive your friends around when they're drinking. <laughs> yes. What would you say to young Rhonda? Mm, I would, oh my gosh, I would just give her a big hug and mm -hmm. say, it's going to be okay. Like you're going to be okay. We're going to, we're going to figure this out and just hang in there. And I would just love her so much. What's your favorite ice cream flavor, Rhonda? Coffee, <laughs> except peanut butter, except no one makes like vanilla with peanut butter. I have to make it myself. Make it yourself. That sounds delicious. Vanilla ice cream, swirl peanut butter in there in the blender. It works really well. <laughs> what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? That as I'm, that you might think it's just going to be a terrible, <laughs> awful life to like not be able to party and have that release anymore, but you will experience joy like you've never experienced ever. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if line. Okay. Again, I'll have to choose one of the 10 <laughs> I was thinking of. And this goes way back. This might've been my first sign that I had a problem is uh, my father-in-law. So uh, I didn't tell you about drinking in New Orleans. There's frozen daiquiri drive-throughs everywhere. You can just drive through 
and get just like you drive to McDonald's, you drive to the daiquiri place and there's 30 different flavors of daiquiris. And I always got you know, at least one extra shot, if not two. And my father-in-law told me one time, he said, you know, ever since you moved from your last place, that frozen daiquiri place around the corner went out of business because you moved. It really did. But I don't think it was because of me, but my father-in-law thought it was because of me. So that might've been a sign. <laughs> oh, Rhonda, thank you so much. See, I'm so glad we finally did this because I know it's going to help it so many people. And I, it wasn't so bad. I'm, it wasn't so bad. I'm still alive. I still have a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Thank so you scary. once again. I love you. Talk I love soon. you more. Okay, honey. Bye. Bye. Very well, Timari. That is a wrap for our interview today. And I just want to go back to the beginning part of the conversation with Rhonda, where she talked about her day count and how she found a system that works for her and that really helped her not continue to feel shame when she was in that restart day one cycle. You know, I know many of us have been there, including myself, and I think that if you have a type A personality or if you have a low self-esteem or low self-esteem issues, it's really easy to feel overwhelmed, defeated, and to stop believing in yourself when you're just restarting and restarting and restarting. And the truth is that every time we restart, we should actually feel more energized because we are doubling down and continuing to try and we are continuing to commit and we are not giving up. And that should add value to our journey instead of add shame. So I just really want to make sure that you all understand that it's not about a date. It's about staying in the journey. I feel like this is my theme for this season uh, of the podcast. You know, just staying in the journey is what truly matters and what truly builds us, not just a recovery, but us. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. Seeing of who you are not, not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself. Life isn't as serious as my mind makes it out to be. Being must be felt. It can't be thought. Your inner purpose is to awaken. I embodies the primary
illusory sense of identity. This is the ego.